Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. What I thought I'd talk about just at the beginning, I just um, talk a little bit about um, oceanography, what it is we're doing. Um, a little bit about how I got into it in the first place, I'm particularly into um, oceans and computers and data. And then um, from what BODC have been doing and, and um, are doing at the moment into some ideas about um, attaching the scientific data to publications that are out there in the scientific literature um, and some ideas around trust and the trust in scientists and the research community. And then um, how we connect um, both the British Oceanographic Data Centre and other data centres globally and, and there may be some of the um, ways in which we're starting to find that ocean data is also big data um, or bigger data than we've had in the past. So before we start, are there actually any oceanographers here? I can say anything, it's great. <laughs> so um, some of you have seen Blue Planet or um, documentaries like that. Unfortunately, oceanography is not all about whales and dolphins. Um, I'm an oceanographer by background and training um, and I've spent a lot of time messing around with boats and um, instruments in the water and all I was ever interested in was where was the water going, how hot or cold was it and how salty it was because those things can tell you so much about what's going on. Um, those are like the isobars on a weather forecast. You look at a map of the, of the weather from, on the weather forecast and you see those isobars, you can tell where the wind's going, you can find out all about the circulation that's going on in the atmosphere, you know what your weather's going to be. That's exactly what we do when we go out in the ocean. We're making those measurements of um, water speed, water direction, and the temperature and the, how salty the water is to find out where the water's come from, where it's going. And uh, as Catherine was saying, that gives us an indication um, as we look at those things over long time periods as to how the climate is changing, the impact of potential climate change on um, global circulation of the oceans and how that changes the heat in the, in the atmosphere and how it affects us day to day. So oceanography is a bit of a random science to get involved in originally and I apologise for how grainy these photos are but I did realise yesterday these are from 1994 so digging them out off the web they, they uh, even had on each link how many kilobytes they were that's how old they are so uh, back in 1994 um, an explorer called Robert Ballard who some of you will have heard of he was the uh, discoverer of the Titanic was involved in um, this group of projects called the Jason Project and in 94, they beamed their expedition to the uh, Belize jungle to the Merseyside Maritime Museum in Liverpool, where I was um, a teenager. And I went along and uh, ended up sitting down in one of these banks of computers at the front, talking to the uh, scientists out there. And that was when I really got interested in finding out more about the, uh, the, oceanographic, the ocean environment. And that was kind of also kicked off my interest in the computer aspect of things as well and that's grown into working both at sea collecting the data so making the samples in the water and then now working at the British Oceanographic Data Centre. Um, this map um, shows something that we'll come back to. We actually are involved in several projects where we're linking the National Oceanographic Data Centres 
UNESCO sponsor these. There, there is a group from UNESCO in the United Nations who put these National Oceanographic Data Centres together, coordinate them, and we have a project in Europe that's funded by the European Commission to link 50 data centres around the European Commission together so that there's a one-stop shop for ocean data. You can go and find out from the, uh, the webpage whatever you want to know uh, that's been brought together by that project. And we, you, as you can see, we've got partners throughout <coughs> Europe, some in North Africa, some pushing out towards the Middle East, and we're connecting those together because the ocean's such a dynamic system that if you just have the British data, it's, you're not getting enough context to find out what's going on when you're out there. And um, there's a British group called Medin, and their website is bizarrely oceannet.org rather than medin.org. Um, but that's the Marine Environmental Data and Information Network. And they bring together um, lots of British organisations. Um, so we're involved in that as well. And we're linking together with the Environment Agency, Crown Estates, um, people like that to, to link together the British data so that we can start reporting to people who want to make decisions about planning and uh, the environment. So that's kind of the work that we do. And I, I want to pull back for a bit now and um, talk about some more general ideas um, that I think you know, we can all learn from in, in different realms um, and then talk about how we're applying them in some of the new work that we're doing. So this is all the work that we've done traditionally, this kind of putting things into portals um, but then we'll come back to some of the new things. So um, this guy um, is, was Professor Ian McHarg. He was a professor uh, of architecture, landscape architecture in the United States. He was born in Glasgow and, and moved over to uh, New England where he was um, a professor. Um, he was a landscape architect and environmental architect. The reason I kind of got interested in the work that he did um, was because um, at one of the uh, unions that I'm involved in, the European Geosciences Union, the Earth and Space Science Informatics Division, so that's the division that all the people who are interested in data go along to, they have a medal that they give out to people for um, you know, good service to that division or good service to the science. And it's named after Ian McHarg because he um, invented what we call geographic information systems or is regarded as one of the inventors. Um, because as he was going about his planning, he had this mantra. He had a book called Design with Nature. And so he was interested in looking at how things fitted together, lots of different things fitted together, so that he could build maps. <clears throat> and he built these overlay maps. Originally, he built them on um, acetate. So you'd map out your watershed. You'd map out the slope of the land. You'd map out what the soil type was. You'd map out how the land was used, <coughs> what animals lived there. And then you could overlay all these different parts of information to build something that might look a bit messy. But his practice used that um, in planning uh, river developments in, in the United States, in planning um, rural, uh, rural to urban developments. And they used these things. And then um, as they evolved, they evolved into what we recognize now as a geographic information system. Something that you'd, um, you know, you can overlay on a map that you'd get from Google Maps. You can overlay information. This, uh, I just picked this up from the BBC website. This is um, how happy you are or how, how uh, secure you feel with your job. And it's data that the BBC put up um, from that, that they got from surveys in the east of England. And that's, you know, we all recognise these things as 
uh, what we call geographic information systems. But one of the things that really interested me about how, uh, when they were developing those overlay maps originally, is that they attached, um, they were definite that they needed to know who had collected each layer of data because they were very interested in the value system or what they call the value system that was attached to those data. And you start to see that they were interested in the trust that was attached to each layer of data that they were using to create their information products. So if you go away and look at um, the business studies literature and the social science literature, you can build a model of trust that starts with, um, it's got three, three aspects to it. And it starts with benevolence, which is about how somebody who's contributing to a, a network where you're researching or building data products or building information products, how are you, uh, are, are you engaged with the good of that group and are you caring for the individuals in your network? Um, and then it's about how competent you are. So are you good at what you do? Do people recognise that? Um, and are you recognised as having knowledge um, in, the, in the domain that you're working in and in the network that you're working in? And then do you stick to a value system? Do you, are you, uh, do you have integrity? And so the one of the reasons why I, I was kind of interested in this was that um, as earth science scientists, as climate scientists, um, we faced an erosion of trust in the work that we do around the time of the climate gate incident. Now I used to be at UEA, so I kind of, you know, I was, I, I uh, declare kind of interest in that. So I was um, interested in how we can, mechanisms that we can use to build up the trust. And so I think what I'm going to talk through now is, is a way of sharing data that we came up with, opening data up, linking it to the journal publications, scientists live or die in their careers by getting journal papers out. And um, by attaching the data to it, they can be seen to be working for the good of the community, more benevolence. It's totally transparent what they're doing, and because their uh, name is on it and <coughs> you can see the research paper attached to it, you can um, assess their competence as scientists. And also, because we have the scientific method underpinning everything, you know what the value system is, you know what the integrity is. So. If you look at um, some more social science literature, it shows that um, after ClimateGate, there was a real issue um, around trust in climate scientists and earth scientists and the work that they were doing. So at the same time, um, nature in 2008 said so we're moving into the big data era of science. And The Economist in 2010 talked about the data deluge and data being everywhere, but you couldn't drink any of it. <coughs> so. This is the work that I was talking about earlier. This is, this is where BODC, the British Graphic Data Centre, sat and still sits to a large extent. We get data and we collect it from the people who have been out at sea or um, uh, done some remote monitoring of the ocean and we serve it out. And we, we will serve it out forever. Um, we are funded by one of the research councils of the United Kingdom to do that. And we don't, um, we don't have any retention schedules on the data either. They are there um, in perpetuity as far as we're concerned. We're not going to take anything, anything away once we've put it up because it's the only, the only record of that, 
that measurement in time and space. And then we started moving towards, oh, sorry, we started moving towards what we're calling data set citation. It means that you can say exactly what a data set is that you've been working on. So if you were creating a scientific paper, you could drop it into the references. If you were uh, writing a report for government, you can say, I've used these data. You can go and verify what I'm saying. Um, um, the way we've done that is there's these things called digital object identifiers, DOIs. They're a unique identifier um, that um, the way we do it with data, we get them through the British Library. So there's a whole group of people who are interested in doing this. The British Library organises them in the UK and we can attach those DOIs to the data. And we're saying there, if we do that, we're going to keep hold of the data. Um, we're going to make it as open as we can. If you put the DOI into your web browser, the DOI system will take you to a page at the British Oceanographic Data Centre. And in contrast to when we serve data sets, where, okay, a lot of it's open in terms of anybody can get hold of it, you still have to register and log in. These data are truly open. You can just click a download button once you get there. And also, um, we've kind of come up with this big P publication of data sets as well, where um, we put a little rosette there, because um, these are actually, you're writing a, a little report, a little science uh, paper about the data, and then that goes to a journal, and you get a journal publication. So again, that's credit going on the scientist's record. So we're giving scientists an incentive here to uh, get their data open for us. Um, and into us so that we can get anybody who wants to to use them. Um, and so that was something that we were interested in doing anyway. Um, and then all of a sudden we started seeing a whole bunch of um, scientific journals coming along at the same time saying, this is, this is what we want to be doing. We want to be getting um, the data from um, about the Earth system and we want to be publishing it. And we want to have these peer-reviewed data, data papers associated with the data sets. So um, Earth System Science data came along and that's published by um, a group called Copernicus and they organised some of the big Earth science conferences in Europe. Um, Wiley and the Royal Meteorological Society uh, created the Geoscience Data Journal and Nature have just started another journal, um, Scientific Data. And these are open access journals um, that you should just be able to go along to those journals' websites and get a full description of the data that's been through some level of peer review. And there should be a data centre holding those data um, behind it. So BODC happens to be accredited to all of, all of those journals as repositories for the data. Um, and um, assuming you were interested in dissolved organic carbon, which tells you... Um, it tells you some things about um, about the, the uh, climate and about the um, about the um, plankton activity. The, the, the plankton is like the grass of the ocean. It, it, it does the um, it does the photosynthesis. It feeds the ocean animals. So if if you were interested in those dissolved organic carbon measurements from uh, this particular cruise, then that has a, a DOI on it, and you could get to the landing page on the BADC website and you could oops, hit the download button and you'd get the data straight back. And we wrote um, a manual that 
that is being used um, by the UNESCO data centres for oceanography to start implementing this in various places across the world. <laughs> but this leads us to another problem. This is Manual and Guide 64. And you start ending up with standards everywhere. So if you want to do something clever, if you wanted to say, the European Commission have said, um, I want to know what the, uh, what the level of human pollution by trace metals. So uh, these are things that come from heavy industry, washed down through the rivers into the seas around Europe. I want to be able to map that. And I want to be able to then make European policy based on those data. If this is Manual and Guide 64, how do you know what standard you're going to use? You end up, this is one of my favourite cartoons about standards. This is, um, this is taken from, 18, from the 1840s and it's an engraving of Gloucester Station. And the problem at Gloucester Station was it was where Brunel's line um, met Stevenson's line. And um, being pioneering engineers, they had their own railway gauges. And so the trains couldn't, uh, couldn't go from one line to the other. So if you wanted to get from Birmingham to, uh, well, I think, I think it was Birmingham to London, but I'm not quite sure why it would go through Gloucester, but never mind. Um, if you wanted to make this journey, you had a scramble across the, the platform. And um, Matthew Engel, who uh, some of you will know, he, he was the editor of the Wisden Cricket Almanac for many years. He wrote a book about, um, about the history of the railways in the UK. And he said, they're engineers. They should have known which gauge. They should have just known to pick one gauge and run with it, rather than ending up in this situation where people were piling across the platforms. But the problem then, if you are talking about an international system, is what happens if you've got one gauge and each country picks their own gauge, but you want to do something across the whole world? Plug sockets. How many of you have got loads of different plug adapters for when you're travelling to different places? Because everybody picked one gauge, but it wasn't the same gauge between different countries. So you end up with another cartoon that I quite like where you want to standardise everything, but there's 14 competing standards, so you end up making a 15th. <laughs> instead, we went for the, yeah, uh, instead we've been trying to build a plug adapter for um, marine data, a universal adapter for marine data. Um, started many years ago in the 1980s as essentially a dictionary. So <laughs> when you go out, to see, to make oceanographic measurements, you're basically making the same measurements as everybody else who goes to do oceanography. It's very rare that you will do something brand new because you have to build brand new sensors to, to do the brand new things. Um, so we start, started out in the 80s with these code tables and they have little kind of four character definitions. So if you were measuring salinity, you'd put PSAL um, against your data stream. Um, but the problem with this is it's very difficult to update it if you're publishing it as a hard book. Um, some of you all know the Blackadder sketch where, where Dr. Johnson has just written his dictionary. Um, Blackadder thinks they've burned it by mistake overnight and sits up trying to rewrite it. 
and he can't get past Aardvark. And then uh, somebody mentions sausages to Dr. Johnson, who goes mad because he's left sausage out, and it seems that he's also left Aardvark out. And if you've handwritten your dictionary, you can't update it, you can't add new words very easily. So we actually moved from having a system in paper form to a system on the web. Um, this is a little snapshot of um, uh, a gazetteer. Um, it it dis defines uh, sea areas that are used um, to mark up data throughout Europe, to annotate data that are collected throughout Europe and, and further afield to say which sea area they were collected in. Now, I've shown that version because if I should do the proper version, it'd be XML and it would be all horrible. Um, but the computers can understand it and can talk to each other. And so what we call the NERC vocabulary server that we run, um, it serves out all of these dictionaries of area where things were collected, of what was collected. And, and it uses um, standards that have come out of um, the World Wide Web um, Commission, consortium, uh, W3C, for linked data. And um, so it means that you can start plugging your data together with data that other people have collected. So the dictionaries are all available online through the web. They're available in a machine-readable format. A computer can understand them. They're supplied in um, an open, non-proprietary format. They're supplied using W3C standards, and they've got links to other dictionaries that are out there. So we've linked to quite a lot of other dictionaries. This might not be the easiest slide to read. But we've got links to things like the Ordnance Survey 50K Gazetteer. So the Ordnance Survey publish um, all the names on their 1 to 50,000 maps. So we've linked all our ports in Great Britain to the Ordnance Survey. So you can pick whether you want to use the Ordnance Survey or one of our ports. We've got links to um, uh, vocabularies that are used throughout the world to describe water quality and things like that. So using this technology, we're starting to be able to build those products. So we're now able to take data and say, oh, because you've annotated it using um, this standard dictionary that we're publishing online, you can then amalgamate it. And we've got scientists who are working on saying, okay, this thing and this thing and this thing, they're all scientifically equivalent. We can attach those together and we can do aggregations there. This is all very new, so I haven't got any pretty pictures I can show you, unfortunately. But um, this is going to go into maps that are going to be used as information products around Europe um, so that we can assess the health of the seas around Europe. And that's going into things like um, uh, clean seas policies, it's going into bathing water quality information, and it's going to be used at a European Commission level to make those decisions about um, policy developments around, around Europe. So I think we're on to the last couple of slides now. Um, right at the beginning, I showed you a picture of a ship. So that's the glamorous kind of face of oceanography. You go out to sea, and it's all uh, very exciting, and it's all very adventurous. But it's a very slow way of collecting data, because you've got to steam your ship out there. So... Uh, Somebody was asking me before, is it true that only 2% of the ocean has been sampled? Well, I think that might be over-egging it slightly. Um, I think we've probably done a little bit more than that. But it's, the ocean has been very uh, sparsely sampled. Yeah. Um, we haven't been able to collect very many data points because you need a ship to do it. Um, 
satellites can only do the surface. Any satellite um, image you get, the seawater itself um, blocks um, the, the satellite uh, from collecting any information below the first couple of centimetres because of the, the, the water composition. So we've been building these, um, we call them gliders. Um, they look like little torpedoes and they um, are starting to run around the ocean a lot more. You can set them off from a beach or you can set them off from a ship and you can tell them where you want them back and when you want them back. On the whole, they come back. Um, once a day, they tend to pop up to the surface and beam back up most of the important information. Um, but some of the some of the data they they will keep on board because of bandwidth issues. Um, but they are really helping us to get a, a new feel for um, collecting much higher volumes of data. We also have um, things called Argo floats, which do the same thing, but they they then buoyant and they drop down to 2,000 metres depth in the ocean and bob back up again and they get a profile um, and from from these close to real time observations it means that you can then get the data back in real time because they've got satellite communication systems on them you get your data back to a satellite you get it back to the data centre you run automatic scripts on it instead of having to wait for a ship to get back you can now bash it straight off to the Met Office systems and it means that all of a sudden you've got a whole new um, raft of observations that are going into your weather forecast so your weather forecast is being improved all the time the uh, the big hurricane that Michael Fish said oh that's that's not coming no, there's no wind out there that was missed because it went right down the middle of two light ships by instrumenting the ocean more with gliders and floats it means that we start to get better observations of the weather systems so you get hopefully a more reliable weather forecast because there's a lot more information going in there and finally this is uh, this is on the uh, archaeology data archaeology point of view so um, uh, Catherine mentioned uh, us rescuing some data from um, the Antarctic well that was kind of 20 year time series which is very important because it's the longest time series um, of observations that have been made down there. But the longest sets of measurements that have been made to do with the sea around Britain are to do with the tides. Um, for, for probably about 150, 160 years, people have been making measurements. A lot of them were, were handwritten into books um, for, for the portmasters and, and for um, harbour authorities. And those books quite often ended up in the basement at Liverpool in the, uh, in the observatory, the tidal observatory. Um, and last year we had a project from JISC where we got the, uh, we got the old ledgers, the old books, um, took them out of the basement that was very prone to flooding and we got them digitised. Um, and so these long-term records, we were particularly interested in, um, we did the Mersey because of where we're based up in Liverpool. Um, and so that was obviously a fairly local impact thing that we had there. But we had a long record for the Mersey, and so we've, we've digitised those. And the Environment Agency were very interested in um, the long-term records around the Thames estuary, um, because that has an impact on how they operate the Thames barrier. So they can look at um, 
the, the, the longer term records that are no longer just in paper form they, um, they're certainly available in some digital form now and very soon they'll be available for everybody to get uh, via our website um, yeah so they're being used um, to look at uh, look at how the barrier is operated on the Thames because you the, as you look at the historical record you see droughts and you see uh, wet seasons and floods so the 18, 1880s 1890s were some very severe droughts so you can look at those effects on, on sea level and as well as the wet, the wet times that have happened as well. So that's where I will leave it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.